Hey y'all, my name is Brittany Rogers and my current corner of TikTok is the Spicy Brain Black Girls. Extra bonus points if they're kink friendly. Hi, and my name is Ajne Dawkins and my favorite YouTube rabbit hole is vocal coaches analyzing black gospel singers. Very on brand. And you're listening to Versus, the podcast where poets confront the ideas that move them. And we are your co-hosts, Brittany and Ajene. Today, we are going to be interviewing the beautiful, illustrious Maya Marshall. But before we get into that, Bess, how you feeling? Huh? Pretty good. I, I low-key can't complain. Best face, how are you? Yeah, same, same. Can't complain. I'm in a great place. I was just eating some lasagna. It was delicious. Love that. And so I want to, my, my question for you today is, in an alternate world where you aren't a poet, what's something else you might have been? Honestly, I would probably nanny, but like for the baby babies. So I could just hold them like all day. I would spoil people's babies right in my God. And then I could give them back. And that would be even more delightful. That's incredibly on brand. Oh my God, they cuddle so sweet. Y'all baby smells so good. I don't want no more never, but they smell so good. <laughs> so I didn't have to worry about like the money and in a different world where I could just like cuddle people's babies and give them back. I think I would just feel so satisfied at the end of the day. What about you, Bess? I would be working with animals in some capacity, but not a vet because they have to put them to sleep and I couldn't do it. I couldn't even work in a vet's office because the sheer fact of somebody bringing their animal in, knowing it's about to get put to sleep, I would never emotionally recover. You best, you already know. I was gonna say, I could just picture you inconsolable. It would not be good for them. Inconsolable. I thought about applying at a vet's office um, and couldn't do it. So some combination of working with animals and like working with the land. Mm -hmm. So even though I ain't really done nothing with gardening since I was like a kid helping my grandmother, maybe like animals and farming. Let's go with that. I can't see that, Bess. I'm picturing Bess with the overalls and whatever. You know what I'm saying? Digging in the dirt. Yeah, I just have to get over my fear of bees. (laughs) That's holding me back. (laughs) Learn something new about you every day. (laughs) You know, it makes sense. I don't know that I've heard you use that language before, but now that I'm even thinking about us outside at times, I'm like, nope, that it all tracks. It all tracks. Okay, so you heard it here, folks. In an alternate world, you would have Brittany as a nanny and Ajene as a farmer. But in this world today, we are still poets and your co-host of Versus. So we're going to read Maya Marshall's bio so we can jump into this interview. Maya Marshall is the author of the full-length poetry collection, All the Blood Involved in Love, and the chapbook Secondhand. She is the co-founder of Underbelly, the journal on the practical magic of poetic revision. She teaches poetry at Emory University. Let's get into it. Maya, we would love it if you would start the show off by reading us a poem. Okay, I'm going to read this poem, Field of Blood. In the hospital, the man I love lowers his eyes. Catheter, cotton. I join his mother for a walk. If I were your mother, I'd tell you not to marry him. My own mother says I can't stay with a sick man. You want to fix everything. But why should we leave good things broken? On some night, my love says, I wouldn't want to be black. I try to understand how he could call blackness the burden, not the whiteness heaped on top of it. 
Blackness is not a failure of the body. I bleed daily for a month, produce a liver-shaped thing. He rinses his blood with a chemical cocktail every third Thursday. We make nothing. No child, no pacts, but distance until we both lose. On some day in our home, my love says, our child would not be black. But we're American, I think, and say, she would. He thinks we understand each other because of his illness and my blackness, but my blackness does not make me sick. Love has betrayed my heart. I'm sure Judas loved Jesus, but fear is a tyrant. In this story, you're Judas, and I'm Judas too. A cynic would say he just loved money more, but what would they say to the field of blood? I loved my man and our cats, but the girl in my chest will always chase the storm in the field. Abandon the ghost in the house, leave the blood and water running in the bathtub and hair on the floor, walk into the warm spring night in a blackout, follow the moon down the sidewalk, eyes glinting like the backyard cougars of my youth, and leave you with your bare heart and your mended bones, waiting for me to come back. A version of me will leave and let the felines starve, because the beast in me does not want to be needed. A cat's cry mimics an infant's cry. I like to think I could deny even this. Oh, Jesus. I remember when I first read this poem, I knew I was in for a time when I got to, his mother says, uh, I wouldn't, I would tell you not today. I was like, all right, that's a buckle up buttercup <laughs> because this one's in the, For me, it's when we got to, uh, you're Judas and I'm, I'm Judas, Judas too. too. I said, okay. <laughs> Now we implicating the self. Hold on. Listen. Am I too Judas? I was like, wait a second. Are we all? Am I too Judas? We, honestly. Yes. We we were literally, I'm so happy with that. Poem. Listener, we, if you don't have all the blood involved in love, the line breaks also go crazy in that poem. Bananas. So you should get a physical copy if the you don't li- have a physical copy. The line breaks go crazy in the whole book. There is one line that I think like broke and then like, to the next page and then so like it took me to the next page to see what was go- and I was like listen <laughs> I don't know what this woman's problem is I said <laughs> now Maya I like why would she do us this way listen it listen. was I when I feel vulnerable I feel attacked I'm not yeah. gonna lie to you personally like, felt attacked <laughs> personally was over here like alright well good night <laughs> because nobody even asked you that <laughs> So, no more interacting for the rest of the day. Literally. Because <laughs> um, nobody even asked you that thing. No, that's the reason I'm like, I feel feelings. Now I got to yeah. pick on these feelings. Now I got to ask myself the relevant questions. Honestly, that that's exactly exactly what this collection did for me. Um, so I'm super excited that we get to talk to you today. And we want to know what's moving you these days. What's moving me these days? I have been really into this moment of reading about environmental or reading environmental writing, reading about environmental justice, reading just like beautifully rendered stories of everyday flora and fauna and people just moving to the space that is earth as it exists right now. So I read this book called Late Migrations by Margaret Rankel, who writes for like the New York Times or something, something fancy. And I read Camille Dungy's book, um, the guidebook to relative strangers. It's like a memoir, travel, motherhood book. 
And it's, I don't know, maybe 10 or 12 essays about traveling through the United States as a recent parent or right before becoming a parent. I spend a lot of time thinking about being a parent because I am, I see it as uh, quite the calling, but one that I don't expect to answer. And that feels like a lot of meaning, a lot of choice I'm making for my maternal line, for my future. And part of the reason I, you know, as a teenager thought I don't want to be a parent is that I wanted to be a writer. And I felt like many, many, many people who can be, who can birth children feel that I would have to choose. One time I was listening to Marilyn Nelson at the Poetry Foundation, and she talked about feeling like she made a good choice, but a difficult choice to clip her wings when she had children. And she described a postcard she'd seen with a woman holding a newborn baby and sort of angel's wings bloodied on the floor and her back, you know, blood running down her back. And that feels resonant to me always. So Camille Dundry's choice to write about being in her body in various spaces in the United States, one, allows me to think about environmental writing as being about landscape and place wherever the objects are, wherever the body is, rather than as some wild and densely populated with trees and flora kind of space because, you know, the world has been conquered. Um, and so that's not what nature really looks like for us anymore. And that means I can write about wherever I am as I work on teaching myself how to write essays and uh, think about safety and proximity and movement and freedom. So your original question is what's moving me these days? Yeah, stories about being most alive in our bodies, in our real spaces, and the freedom to move about. Mm. Yeah, I think about lots of things at a time. So I've been thinking a lot about simultaneity. It's been a good year, a big year, a full year. I fell in love with a person, Aww. which is lovely. I like him a lot. He's a big, kind, John Henry kind of human. Oh, we love him. And it was a surprise, because it was like six weeks after I moved here. I was like, oh, well, but then... You know, he got diagnosed with cancer, which is surprising and unfortunate and frightening. And not like light cancer, like, let's get rid of this one mole. But like, this might be short <laughs> and important love affair. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I don't, I trust that it will not be. Anyway, I think about that, about simultaneity, about everything happening all at once. That's a gorgeous answer. <laughs> and already has me like stewing in so many different directions. I think I'm always like particularly touched when folks are talking about the the autonomy and weight and consequences of motherhood because I feel like that's like I have three kids and I have sibling like kids. And so I don't know that I remember not feeling like somebody's mother. And I think that there's a way in which it's expected to be like celebrated all the time and like that's cute or whatever, but that's also just not <laughs> It's not very factual or practical. And I won't say that, like, I feel like I didn't have a choice because that's not true, right? But I will say that as, like, an oldest daughter, you know, there are some ways where you kind of don't. And so I always appreciate people talking about really sitting with the autonomy of that choice and decision-making because I think that's, like, hella important and so valid and so unspoken of. Yeah, and, and diminished, right? Like, it's, I, I'm, I'm a youngest child, right? So, yes, I was raised with just me and my mom that meant I had responsibilities in our household but it wasn't caretaking which means I've pretty much always had the freedom of only taking care of myself or being taken care of and so I made an effort I made a choice to take care of just myself long term which meant you know I'm not gonna act like I'm old old but I'm not young young either so waiting until this 
point in my life to uh, decide that I would take on partnership. Maybe I'm the only one that sees this, but I doubt it. There is an expectation for women to be caretaking in some partnership, to, to like have the most successful thing you do to be becoming a partner, to become a parent, um, and not to give space to your imagination and creativity. And that, that is the thing I was I am interested in nourishing. So as much as being an oldest daughter really does start you off as a parent pretty early, <laughs> there is this other kindred set of assumed or imposed responsibilities that says any female child child should find a way to take care of somebody in, instead of in investing in her creation. That made me think a lot about, um, you just said, t- takes me back to the book because one of the things I loved most about it was that I got the sense of longing but I appreciated that the longing wasn't for what, like, the expected things were. You know what I mean? Like, when you talk about love, it's not like, okay, I want this fairy tale love. It's very much I want the possibilities. I was saying to Ajane before this started was that I felt like this book laid out so many possibilities, but didn't necessarily give me, like, a resolution or an ending, which I loved because I'm like, okay, mm. we get to choose. <laughs> <laughs> um, and autonomy is really important to me. I would love mm. if you were open to talking about, like, how... The longing for autonomy shapes like your work or your thought process even Mm -hmm. in terms of poetry. I might call it uh, uh, stubbornness. Listen. (laughs) A a fierce independence. Um, I'm going to say this thing that I think is funny. I'm an Aquarius. (laughs) Like if my book's anything. (laughs) It is. I know that it was born in June. June, And yet she is an Aquarius. Um, She wants the possibility. Uh, and that's important. I holler. <laughs> um, I want to be able to come to every point and see what the choices lie ahead and make those choices. Maybe in collaboration, but certainly whichever one is best for my spirit. And I'm unwilling to allow a circumstance where I don't get to do that. Um, so it means sacrificing some things like... Like neat endings yeah. or uh, people <laughs> sometimes, which is why like exercise is important to me in the process of making poems, that choosing to begin with an exercise, like there's a poem in here called um, Anatomy of a Fish Hook, mm-hmm. which started... A banger. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really like that poem too. Thanks. Um but it started as a negative image. This is where you sort of write the opposite of every word on the page in someone else's poem. Mm-hmm. So what's the opposite of fish? What is the opposite of the word a? You know, and once you have that sort of bag of words, you revise into sense making. I added also the words that are that describe the parts of a fish hook because I wanted to think about a relationship with this woman that I loved. Um and the things that were complicating it, the sort of feeling hooked in it. But it means that I didn't know where the language was going to go because I started with some structure that existed and then moved into possibility based on what was on the page. That's that's kind of how I think about the structure that leaning towards possibility offers, not as something that removes options necessarily, but as one that opens a set of pathways that are navigable and visible and not overwhelming because they're determined. I love that you say not overwhelming because I think sometimes possibility makes me feel overwhelmed. It's real stressful. Yeah. 
also that exercise. I'm like, can you send me that? Because <laughs> I was like, ooh, I want to try that again. <laughs> I love that poem. I also really appreciate the place of possibility in this book and autonomy. Brittany and I, we've talked a lot about this book. If it's not already out <laughs> we were very excited. Um, Thank you. And something that a few things really stuck out to me, but one of the things that I wanted to ask you about was this place of autonomy in relationship and autonomy in vulnerability. So this mm. idea that kind of keeps coming up in the poems in different ways of like when somebody makes themselves vulnerable to you, then like there are these options that you have. Like, And one of the options that continuously comes up in the book is this option to protect, mm. um, to protect and choose tenderness or to choose a form of violence or to choose another thing. Protecting is always in the list of options that you have for someone. And I'm really invested in how this idea of maybe protecting loved ones, protected, protecting kin, or just protecting folks who have made themselves vulnerable, like may have dri driven some of your writing process. Because I was so struck by this like continued language for what does it mean to like, not just be like, I love somebody, but like my love means I defend you. My love means I protect you. I shield you. I guard you. Yeah, isn't it? Doesn't it? I think that's a defining characteristic of the ideal version of mother love, mm. right? I make you, I protect you. I think that's the ways in which I have internalized and acted on my assumptions about gender have become clear to me when I enter relationships with people who do not seek to protect me. Mm. <laughs> uh, it's very shocking when it happens that way. Um, the ways in which, you know, daughters are expected to become caretakers implies, insists on um, an effort to protect the beloved first before the self. I'm recently learning to think and mean myself first when I say love, when I say I love. You know, love is not a sweet thing always. I come from a people hurt. I just, you know, this is an afterlife of enslavement, this choosing kinship, this persistent choosing, um, knowing that we come from the same place, but that we don't have clear lineage because it was taken, knowing that there is a danger outside always and that we are protectors, knowing that um, secrecy is protective and destructive. You know, I think there's never only one thing. So love is one of these things that encapsulates fear and hatred and protection and dedication and soothing touch you know all of the things so that's you know the book is called all the blood involved in love right i have never since childhood even in childhood seen love as something purely gentle or kind because one of the ways to demonstrate it is to be d defensive on the behalf of of your beloved mm. right that's what, you know, like I was talking to someone I care for and they were experiencing some fear about telling their truth to uh, someone important in their life. And I said, you know, <laughs> that person loves you so deeply that if anyone were trying to, to try to assault you, it would be on site. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like done. They'd be done on, on site um, without regard for fallout or arrest or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> like she would. She would squash it because that's what is at the crux of it, I think. Choosing to care for despite fury, despite being dismissed or harmed. 
So there's a poem in here called uh, Daddy on the Sofa. And there's a line that says, Tenderness is the impulse to protect what you know you could destroy. This is the gift of my father's neck, you know. Pretty often I think about this moment in uh, The Color Purple where Celie is shaving Mr. Listen. <laughs> you know. I don't know who she's protecting, but functionally she's protecting both of them, choosing not to cut his neck. Protecting herself from becoming a murderer, protecting herself from having to explain anything, protecting him from her fury. Maybe it's care to groom him. I don't know. Anyway, those are the things I think about. I think that protection is implicit in love. And when it fails, then it's not love. Or when it's not fails, when it's not the intention of the one who calls themselves a lover to protect, then that is not love. I really appreciated the way that your work articulated choices that I didn't think, I don't think I realized I was making in my relationships of love. And I'm like, oh, I do make this choice. And so in this work, articulating a kind of autonomy, I think it also made me aware of my own autonomy mm -hmm. in love. Yay. And so right. it's not always yeah. this sort of overwhelming compulsive experience. Yeah. I mean, yeah, maybe that's therapy talking. I'm like, okay, I do have my feelings, but my feelings do not make decisions. Oh, for but me. listen. <laughs> feelings are not that. <laughs> I was just about to say that. Let me tell you. <laughs> or my therapist would be like, you felt that thing, but do you have to act on it? And I'm like, wow, First you mean to tell me? Your voice right? Okay. <laughs> and, but feelings are playing the part as facts. Feelings are playing that part. They are acting a role, okay? Because I'd be like, are they facts though? But <laughs> They're true unto themselves. Yeah. But I'm not compelled if I take a moment to pause an asset. Pausing is an asset um, that I possess. Then I get to decide how to choose in response to them. Right. And like every fucking movie out there will have you believe that you have to do whatever love compels, like tells you to do. Yes. And that's not true. <laughs> not true. I'm so grateful to hear that that conversation is something that happened in your head, between your head and this book. Yeah, that's beautiful. I'm thinking back to what you mentioned a few minutes ago about secrecy, because that was something that came up for me in the book. Like, I have a very, very matriarchal family, and the secrets are abundant. Do you hear me? Ooh. They're just... <laughs> I'm like, why do y'all do this? My God. I feel like... They're like, protection. Like so that's what... Hurt. Listen, that's what I was thinking about as I was reading, because I do think that, you know, at this... So I'm... Listen, I'm 35, right? And at this point, every year I learn a new secret in my family. And I'm like, oh, well, when were we going to talk about this? Or when were we going to talk about that? <laughs> or I brought this thing up at the family table and everybody acted like they didn't hear me. And then we just kept talking. And I'm like, well, what? That's such what a power What is going move. on? Refusing to answer a question posed to you directly? That's such a, like a G move. Oh, and oh, let I me tell you. <laughs> Who, the, the stubborn in my family? Is an honorary, cantankerous, outlast, everybody <laughs> stubborn, right? But I think your book called me to think about secrecy even as, as a different sort of choice. Because I think I often see it in like a negative space. But thinking about like the hurt, you know, the ancestry, all of those things in secrecy, it, it made me reconsider how much of that is protecting me. Where if, even in the moment, you know, my feelings are hurt because I don't know this thing. Long term, there's this thing that I don't know. And who knows what that thing I could learn might do to me, right? So... I think that brought up then larger questions about even in writing, like, what do we reveal? What do we not reveal? Like, what do we keep secret? What do we hold to us? And I think it's making me wonder in this conversation, like, if you have a way that you prioritize, like, what you keep secret versus what makes it to, to the page. 
Yeah, the balance for me is always like what information is crucial to understanding the emotional terrain of this thing? What information is mine to share and which isn't? Demonstrative gesture or detail can be here that says something true that may or may not be true to, to a lived experience. Because, you know, we're making poems. Those are made objects that are separate from um, nonfiction, right? You said so many things. Okay, so sometimes secrets are there for our protection, right? Like if I had learned some things when I was a child, it would have been traumatic for me. Learning them at 38, it's revelatory about the people I love, right? Oh, this is where we come from. Oh, this is why things have been the way they are. This is how you hold your hurt, etc. I think uh, process-wise, I decide which things get to be public through revision and conversation. I asked permission for some of the details in this book, and some of them, some of the details are true to the emotional terrain and not to anybody's lived experience. And choosing the secret, which is which, that's my job right now, right? When you were talking about, um, Anjane, emotional autonomy, no, relationship, romantic autonomy, right? Which secrets we know about ourselves that we don't share with our partners are part of that, mm. you know? Which is allowed, but it also... You know, it's a risk and benefit situation. Jesus. That is. <laughs> Listener, it probably doesn't sound like it, but I'm being screamed at right now. I'm being personal. I'm sorry, I do not mean to personally assault. Oh my gosh. Yeah, you just made something clear for me. That's that's what comes clear for me. I was talking to somebody the other day about like, what's the point of fighting with your family, right? Like if, if the end game were like, you just don't talk anymore is not on the table, then what are we doing? Like, <laughs> I know you hear and understand me. I hear and understand you. Is that the end of it? Because anything beyond that is like, I see that you don't know that you're not using the same value system I'm using and I'm not going to convince you to, and I won't be using your value system. So we just like see and accept that's, that's the point of arguing, I guess. Something similar, this just feels akin to me to saying like, all right, well, what do you, what is your role in my life if it, if it is not to help me live healthfully as I help you live healthfully, right? Like, did you see this pattern? Because I feel like you could be free from it if you would not do this thing you saw her do. Listen. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, okay. <laughs> Too close. <laughs> but also very much so like, hmm, let's try it anyways. <laughs> <laughs> I know we've seen this play out for multiple generations, but let's give it a go. Might be different, my turn. <laughs> and you know, it might be. Anyway, so this book is super light, keeping it easy. <laughs> a lot of jokes. I'm sorry. Ooh, my therapist is going to hear about some of these questions, let me tell you. Uh, <laughs> unlocking some family patterns over here. Um, but that does make me think about family again as a as an oldest sibling second mom first granddaughter first daughter in a long matriarchy the number of fights that we've had or not had right not to delve too deep but there are like lots of you know undiagnosed things in my family that goes also into those secret keepings that we have so like there are choices that are made about am I gonna have this argument with you because what good is it <laughs> If I'm not disowning you, which I'm not, then right. really you're just going to raise my blood pressure for no reason because <laughs> I know what's on the other <laughs> side of this thing. One of the things that I'm thinking about in this is this process of getting older and how 
we change how our relationships change, the dynamics of those things change. And you use this phrase um, in some of the converse, in the conversation we had before, aging out of promise. And I've been like super stuck on it because I'm like, what does that mean? <laughs> and I wanted to know if you could expand on what this concept of aging out of promise is for you, because I also think the concept of age is really present in like undercurrent in the book as well. I think I mean something about the kind of youthful exploration and potential that exists when one is young, and um, that that diminishes over time because there is less time to use without intention, right? If we recognize time as our sort of only resource, then, you know, the the young folks, people, uh, people 30 and under maybe, um, have more of it to spend in ways that may not have payoff later, any sort of like protect you in your old age kind of payoff, I mean, and I don't necessarily mean money, though I'm using the language of capital. I like to believe, and I think it's true when I look at women in their 50s and 60s and their 70s, that we can invest in how we spend our time later and that there remains potential for types of relationships we assign to young folks. But I don't know what it looks like on that end. Aging out of promise, I think I was really just using in the context of like thinking about the American road trip as something that's about a journey towards self or growth or, you know, some sort of big discovery at the end. And I think the older I get, the more I know that that type of big discovery is not something that arrives all at once, but it's a, an accumulation of learned experience over time that aging out of the types of potential lives we could have had is something that I think takes up a lot of the 30s. It's like, all right, well, I'm going to make this decision, which means I can't make this other one. I won't live this life over here, you know, in the in the thick of, in the fleshy part of life. <laughs> like maybe I can get in a van and drive around for a month when I'm 50 or 70 because of decisions I'm making. Not, and it, you know, I guess I could mourn it, but really it's just that we only have so much time. And I think there's something so clear-eyed about your writing, like so, so concise. And like looking at the possibilities and being able to assess and say, okay, here are, the, <laughs> what Tyra say, I have two pictures before me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And only one of these is going to make it to the next round. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, whoever does not must immediately pack up your bags and you go. <laughs> One is like, I was rooting for you. <laughs> oh, but I think that's such a a brilliant way to to kind of explain it or to think about it. Um, especially in the not mourning like the life that you didn't choose. Because I do think that my younger if we can call them younger years, because I feel like I've had kids for so long that they don't feel the type of younger that I feel like my some of my other friends had. I'm like, oh, you are footloose and fancy free. I would give good money to be footloose and fancy free. And so I think some of my footlooses come more as I age because I'm like, okay, my kids are a little bit older. Now I can live this other self, but this other self still looks different than what it could have looked like. Um, and being able to say, okay, but I can't be sad about that. I have to just, this is what it is. And I think your work gave me a very practical, like, okay, this is this, this is that. How are we, like, moving through it? I mean, when we're talking about simultaneity, I was talking to someone who loves me the other day, and she was like, it sounds like you want it all. I was like, yeah. She was like, have you considered doing it sequentially? 
See, that's why I came to talk to you. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. You can't said that's the piece. Maybe you can, but not all at the same time. That's hard to do at the same time. Yeah. I feel like people be like, how do you juggle things? And I always be like, poorly. <laughs> I'm not doing anything as well as I would like to because I am doing everything. Some of the things are going well right now. Other things are not so much. You know, just so, pick on any given day. <laughs> I mean, I didn't know what this book was going to do for people and people and... It sounds like it's doing good things. It's doing oh, great so, things. So grateful to hear Marvelous that. things. Great experience. <laughs> no, it definitely is. I was going to ask about this this cross-country road trip, right? Because I feel like the idea of travel has come up multiple times in exploration and kind of what being in different spaces or locales can do. When you mentioned traveling for yourself as a part of your personal exploration, are there ways that the places that you go to shift are there ways that it shifts your writing or shows up in your writing? I have been driving around for various reasons, retreats and residencies and moving, moves and to see friends and family for the last five years or forever or whatever. Um, and I've been taking pictures and going on walks and uh, all that kind of thing, just sort of pay attention to what's around me. And um, when I moved into my place here, for my, my first place in Atlanta, where I moved to be back in the South um, and to be outside and to have summer, which feels like what I mean when I say summer. Uh, I put up all those pictures around my living room and my dining room, and I would get up in the morning and write for like 15 minutes in response to, to one of them. Different ones every day, not in any particular order, because the book I'm working on now is about using outdoor space for healing. And, you know, that means that I think about being Southern and think about being in this sort of site of former Black terror as a place of current Black healing. And so, like, process-wise, that has been the major impact of traveling. I was thinking about taking this drive to Texas, which is a scary undertaking. More scary because now I'm older and I know what bad things actually happen and not, mm. you know, 19 where I'm like, those bad things won't happen to me because I'm invincible. Because <laughs> you're invincible. <laughs> I was like, mm, I'm 25 and no longer invincible. <laughs> now I'm like, I'm 38. Bad, like, be careful. Yeah. Like I checked my AAA. And, then, <laughs> and I got an oil change and a transmission fluid change. Anyway, Listen. So I'll be stopping every other hour to make sure someone knows where I am. These, <laughs> I'm still going to do the trip, but it doesn't feel as... Uh, um, but it's still exploratory. You know, I was thinking, like, will I stop at a national park? I got the national parks pass, you know, so I can go to any one in the country and look around. Because um, I want to see where I live, where we live. Uh, and the outside, outdoorsy folks tend to be not black people because of safety. I was going to say, because they have no fear. <laughs> yeah, because it belongs to them. I was reading, if you ever read just, like, travel writing or writing in, like, outside magazine or nature, it's always some dude who's like, I, and I drove all the way across the country, and at no point did I feel like I don't belong. I was like, okay. That's <laughs> <laughs> such a really specific lived experience that most bodies don't get to have. There was, like, this meme where it's, I don't know if it was a meme or somebody, but somebody was, like, posting things that, like, are inherently feel racist, and mm. one of them was just, like, the woods. <laughs> The woods and trees, and I was like, "Yo, yeah, but it shouldn't. yeah. like that's ours because yeah, that's ours." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, being in in between spaces allows for like liminal thinking. You know, like without interruption because there's um, it's like automatic to get through an airport or go through go on a train or or drive on a highway in one direction. So my brain can go wherever it wants to, and then I think thoughts I otherwise wouldn't think to write down. 
Two simple answers. One, process-based. <laughs> and the other, for like giving my imagination space to move around. So before we go into our um, game, if we are going to read you, right, which we have, obviously, what three folks, any genre, would you say, like, these are people who have, like, deeply informed my work? And if you want to most understand my work, these are the people and literally any genre. Like, if there's, like, a cake baker and it's like, you got to look at that cake to know how we got to the field of blood— then that's, yeah, we're cool. about that's the math. Yes. I love that. I'm going to say an answer that is both true and that makes me feel away because I've just read so many other writers since then. But, like, my shit when I was a teenager would be to, like, skip school and go to the bookstore and then just, like, read Charles Bukowski just all the time. All the time. Because Black Lawrence Press has that, like, gritty, I am who I am Maybe it's ugly, but there's beauty in that kind of thing, and that's what Charles Bukowski was about. Never mind the man as a man. I don't know him like that. Um, there was, like, a decade-long period where the answer to this question would be Nina Simone's album, Little Girl Blue. I've never been as fierce as she is, but I try to be as honest. She's amazing. And I don't know, something with some some whimsy. Something with some whimsy. There's, like, the, the tiniest bit of whimsy in this book. That's why the images are strange. So maybe, like, uh, I spent a lot of time looking at surrealism and rational images when I was a kid in high school. So I feel like things that maybe don't belong together definitely belong together. Actually, here's the real answer to that question. If you can think of, like, a 1990s-style cafe, the black girl barista there is the person you need to understand for this book to make sense. I'm like, whatever, Max Ernst, move over. It's the barista. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we're going to play a game called Fast Punch, where you get to tell us the best of things or the worst of things, but like rapid fire. Okay. So do you want to be an optimist and tell us the best of things, or do you want to be a pessimist and tell us the worst of things? Worst of things. I'm pretty positive in general. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> All right, Bess, let's get it started. Let's do it. Worst city to drive through. Ugh, I don't know. Any city in Indiana. Trash. Mm, Trash state. Perfect. Love that. <laughs> Great <Worst>. poets. <laughs> Worst outdoor activity. I mean, like hiking on the top of a mountain on a July day. It's hot. It's too hot mm. for this. All right. Worst love story ever told. Um, love and basketball. <laughs> Woo! Trash. <laughs> let me tell you why. He's just mean to her the whole movie. And it's like, never mind your career. <laughs> why didn't you give up your career to talk to me about my dad being sick or dying or whatever after I was mean and chose this other girl over you? Over Like, it's just trash. The whole thing. And then they're together making less money because the women make less money playing the same sport and then get trapped in friggin' Russia. Anyway, different story. I <laughs> hate it. <laughs> It makes me mad every time my brothers are like, I guess perspective is a thing, because they really loved it. You're not wrong. I love the sentiment of the movie, but every time I'm like, ooh, child, there's red flags everywhere. I'll play you for your heart the most despised line in the history of lines. Disrespectful. Anyway. Sick. Worst chain restaurant. P.F. Chang. Mm. Okay. It's sticky. Am I a- too much sugar at all of the meals. In the words of Brittany, am I a bird? I love the <laughs> <laughs> I love the <laughs> 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 
and I am a bird. Is there only sometimes? I'm like here for a chilies. Like I'll just stick you. I just really like Tex Mex. I guess. <laughs> There's see the problem with me being a pessimist. I'm like, but there is a silver lining. <laughs> worst emotion. Hmm. Impotence. And lastly, worst karaoke song. You know what? You can't sing like Freddie Mercury. Like it's a great sing along. But you're not going to hit the notes to Bohemian Rhapsody. It's really long. And now we're all committed. <laughs> it's too long. And you can't do it by yourself. Actually, here's, I'm changing my answer. Here's a song we all know and love that we'd like to sing along to. But that is a downer. Fast Car by Tracy Chapman is not mm. your karaoke song. You want it to be. Because we all love it. We all enjoyed singing it to ourselves. We think she should come back and sing it to us now. But... It's a downer, and that's not what the bar is looking for. No. Okay. You won the game. <laughs> Excellent answers, I must say. You've you won your prize, and actually, the real tea is phenomenal answers. The prize is not for you. The prize is for us because the prize is we get to ask you to read us another poem <laughs> to honor us <laughs> with another poem in the closing of. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to read a poem that is not in my book. Exclusive. My friend told me he was like, people are going to be excited about your book, but they won't know what it is, what it's titled, unless you say it. I wrote a book. It's called All the Blood Involved in Love. A banger. Thank you. This poem is not in it, Um, but it'll be in the next one. Here we go. Sometimes it helps to focus on the object. There are a few things I know for sure. One, love is in the everyday. Even if it's latent, familiarity breeds it. We choose our people if we're lucky, the ones we're willing to vouch for, to clean up after, to fight with, to defend, wait in lines, pharmacies, hot car lots, airports, traffic, dinner parties, anywhere, for. I'm lucky. Timing is everything. How long doesn't matter if the vibe is right. I changed my city. Sorry, I changed my life. City, work, vice. Then I met a man. He'd been depressed and I knew depression. He'd been an office jockey. I'd been a dreamer. He's a fix-it man. He is a tender giant with a black hole in his temple. His head is a galaxy, and now I wake up next to his cosmos. I watch his teeth and crow's feet when he laughs. He crackles when he stretches on his couch, and I listen to his heartbeat, scratch his beard. Adam after Adam of me presses to his heat. Every day, I want to look longer at him. The line on the bridge of his nose, the scars on his knuckles, knee, shin, ankles. I woke up last night on a mountain, the evidence of a slow fact we know, his bloody toilet paper in the bowl, a cancer bleeding him. There are very few things I know for sure. My spit in the vanity basin, his hair indistinguishable from the small typed O. It looks the same as mine on our pillows. In the morning, the small black O, where he pursed, where his pursed lips part just slightly, meets the circle of my pursed lips, seeking. I hear two black holes will collide soon. Wind rushes over trees in the mountains. Time maintains its rate. We breathe our morning breath on each other, flush after each other, reach for each other, wait as the clouds slither by like scared rattlesnakes. Wake and wait. Wake and wait and wake. Mm. Listener, Brittany is crying. <laughs>
which is why I was just telling that. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. It is true. She's not lying. Oh, my God. I don't believe Maya did that to me. Ain't no reason for it. (laughs) I just don't believe that after that bomb-ass interview, she would just drop that poem and then dip. Like my heart. Ruin our lives. Ruin our lives. (laughs) I'm going to be thinking so much about love ethic and the ways that love equates to like power and autonomy and choice, which I feel like are things that are so very, very rarely mentioned in conjunction with love. Yeah, I'm thinking about that and what we do to protect those that we love. I feel like it's still resonating with me because I I, oh, I think it's hitting so hard for me because I realize how few places in the world that I feel protected, but I always feel protected by the folks who I know love me. Yes. I always feel covered by y'all. And so, Aww. and who in a country don't where they that. ain't protecting us at all. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> don't give a good goddamn, but don't give a damn. Speaking of love ethic best, how do you know when someone loves you? I feel loved when I'm really, really intimately known. And that knowing allows me to not have to worry about how I'm being perceived through my performance or how I navigate the world. I think so much of my anxiety in the world is like wanting to make sure my intentions are clear um, or wanting to make sure that if something that I'm doing or saying doesn't always align or measure up to like a social standard or could be read a certain way, like wanting to clarify that and with people who truly love me I don't have to clarify because they always assume the best of me and in the few times where I won't say they're not assuming the best of me but where they know better it's because they know better and not because they wouldn't assume the best of me and because they know better they can call me out and be like girl get it together and I can be like dang my bad but like if you're giving me short answers you know I'm never like oh gosh Brittany's being so rude today or Brittany must hate me or anything like that I'm always like Brittany's so tired girl take a nap take a nap loving yourself (laughs) or maybe I can be curious and be like Bess what's going on with you but I never take it as a personal affront um or as like an indicator of your character which I am so wildly grateful for listener between you and Maya okay listen I gotta get out of here um I think I know that someone loves me or at the very least is on the path to loving me well when when they begin to take things off my plate without me having to ask for it. Um, I, which is ironic because I don't think that I'm a, a very big like um, acts of service oriented person. I don't think it's the act per se. I think it's when somebody is able to see past me looking efficient or like looking like I have all these things together or like I'm juggling things well and see that I need assistance. I think that's the part that makes me feel love. And I think um, that because there are so many ways where I struggle a bit with like asking for help and vulnerability, I think someone, it, it feels like a kindness to me when someone loves me enough to understand that I do in fact need help and also loves me enough to not like embarrass me by making me ask. Mm. Um and for me, like those two things, like both that seeing and that grace, because you could be like, okay, you know what I'm saying? Close my mouth, don't get fed. And I'd be like, oh, okay. <laughs> and best, I think you know <laughs> more than anybody that, 
long suffering is uh one of those fruits of the spirits that I very much clung to and was like I could take a hit like you know that's fine I could take that on the chin but I do feel loved when people see that that's what I'm doing versus when people are like oh no you got it so you don't need anything I think that that makes a difference to me oh best that makes a lot of sense does it that makes all the sense in the world mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it absolutely makes all the sense in the world knowing everything I know about you and also knowing all the ways that I hear people talk about you Brittany's so strop could never do what Brittany does <laughs> I was just and I'd be like somebody. shit I can't do anything <laughs> Oh man, best I love that so much. Do you have anybody that you want to thank today? Um, yeah, since we are since we're in the throes of feelings, I think I'm going to shout out my granny. Um, because I think that she is the person who has taught me. I'm not going to like say the most, but I think she is the person who has informed so much of my love ethic and the way that I try to show up for people. My granny uh, was born in the 40s and is very much like most people of that time, not necessarily um, vocally emotional, right? But my granny has always, always, always showed up for me. Like, I don't think I've ever doubted the fact that she loved me. Um, And I tend to be pretty words of affirmation heavy. And I don't even think I realized that my granny wasn't saying I love you until I was well into adulthood. Because I think that's how well she showed up to where it was never a question. And then when I did realize, I was like, you don't tell me you love me. (laughs) And we began this slow process of me kind of being like, okay, listen, when someone who you love says, I love you, the kind thing to do is just say, I love you back. (laughs) And she pushed back for a while, but then she like leaned into it. And I remember my mom saying once, she was like, wait, she told you she loved you? And I was like, yeah. (laughs) And she was like, oh child, she must really love you because she don't say that to nobody, right? So things like that, I think are things that have really shaped the way that I try to show up for people and I try to exhibit a care that's so thorough that you know whether I say it or not. So yeah, shout out to her for teaching me that. Shout out to Granny. I love Granny so much. That's my boo. Also shout out to grandmothers who don't say I love you, who just (laughs) or just hang up at the end. Who she used to say thank Um. you. (laughs) Used to be like Jesus, please. Oh what about you, Bess? Who you wanna thank today? I'm gonna thank my nieces, Layla, Edie. And Marley, because they were given the challenge at a recent little function to pretend to be me. And one of them was like, girl, get my wig. (laughs) (laughs) Another one was like, "Uh uh-uh, these is for me, not for you. I'm screaming. Another one was like, hey, boo, what you doing over there, boo? And I was just like, this is ridiculous. And they had the time of their lives. So shout out to them for the, the amount of joy that imitating me. <laughs> we'll say anything. We'll say anything. Who but did and they, they lie? Is the question. They didn't lie though. They regularly bring me a lot of joy. And that's was my joy for the week was watching them imitate me and imitate me taking care of them. So oh, I love that. I would pick it up. Thank you to Danny and the staff at Bravo Ocean Studios, the Poetry Foundation, Itzel Blancas, Yadami Noriega, Elon Sloan, Sim Pim, and Ambi Productions. Please like, rate, and subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much for being here with us. Until next time. Bye.